the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. As I write this introduction, less than 12 hours has passed since Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg succumbed to pancreatic cancer at the age of 87. Supreme Court Associate Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg has died at the age of 87. According to Jewish tradition, a person who dies on Rosh Hashanah, which began Friday, is called a tzaddik, a person of great righteousness. In her life and her actions, Justice Ginsburg was a beacon of righteousness, and she shall be remembered as such. But I am not here to recite the Kaddish for Justice Ginsburg, or even to honor her incredible legacy. As a disgraced and disbarred former attorney, it would simply make me into a hypocrite. So I'll spare you the crocodile tears and summation of her life spent fighting for gender equality. There are others much more worthy of delivering such a eulogy than myself. The front page of the New York Times would be a good place to start, followed by the impassioned words of former presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama. Rather, I'm interested in discussing how Justice Ginsburg's passing is like mana from heaven for President Trump in these final 50 days before the general election. And that's why the Supreme Court is so important. The next president will get one, two, three, or four Supreme Court justices. I had to. This is going to be the most important election, in my opinion, in the history of our country. You got to get it right. Because if you don't get it right, we will not have a country anymore. You're not going to have a country, not as we know it. And here lies my expertise. Not in constitutional law, but the inner mind and temperament of Donald J. Trump. And yes, he may be deranged, bordering on sociopathic, a lunatic in the mold of a fascist dictator, but he is not a fool. And with the passing of Justice Ginsburg, he has an opportunity now to reframe the entire conversation around this one central issue for the remainder of the election, allowing him to pivot away from his bungling of COVID-19 and destruction of the very fabric of our civil society by carrying the torch for the one issue that matters to his conservative and evangelical base, the stacking of the Supreme Court of the United States with conservative judges. So I have to make a decision to fill the seat, as we say. We should have a new campaign. Let's make a T-shirt, fill the seat, okay? Watch. My people are so good. Tomorrow, it'll be all over the place, fill the seat. That's a good idea. That's a good idea. Fill the seat. It's a central part of the tacit agreement made between evangelical and conservative Trump supporters and the president. They agreed to look the other way on his ethical flaws, his sexual deviance, lies, and corruption. And he agrees to rubber stamp that conservative agenda and appoint their preferred judges to the federal courts. We will defend the dignity of work and the sanctity of life. Let me make this painfully clear, though. Trump doesn't give a shit about these issues. He openly laughs at evangelical Christians and mocks their beliefs. For him, it's simply a means to an end, a marriage of convenience. And with the passing of Justice Ginsburg, he holds the ultimate Trump card, reminding them of his importance. And from an ideological standpoint, the stakes are really massive. This one appointment could change the entire trajectory 
of the court for a generation. Again, Trump cares not one iota about these issues, unless it involves the dismantling of Obamacare, but that comes more from his racist hatred of Obama than the law itself. This is about the naked exercise of power and his ability to engender fealty from his base. He craves being important, being needed, and finally, he's been called to duty on the one thing his base actually needs from him. Never mind the abject failure of his administration to protect millions of Americans from infection and hundreds of thousands from death and financial ruin. The key for those of us with a voice and a platform is to remain steadfast in reminding Americans of who Donald J. Trump truly is, both as a person and a politician. The power to appoint judges to the highest court in the land, it's a sacred trust granted to him by the electorate. He intends to exploit and abuse that trust to distract from his failures as a leader. Only now, he has the backing of his entire base of evangelical Christian fanatics, for whom he is their Messiah. But more on that later in this episode. All you need to remember is what I repeat time and time and time again. Donald J. Trump cares for no one or anything other than himself. This is my Today we're going to dive much deeper into the cult of personality that surrounds Donald J. Trump. How does a man with so much hatred in his heart and contempt for basic humanity inspire such blind loyalty? To attempt to answer this question, I turn to one of my dearest friends, Anthony the Mooch Scaramucci. His time spent in the belly of the beast, inside the West Wing as the communications director for the president, gave him a front row seat to the madness of King Donald. That said, Anthony, much like myself, was all in for Trump at the time, doing things and saying things he'll regret to his dying day. Let's listen now to that conversation. So actually, Anthony, the other day you tweeted about my book and how you can relate to your characterization of Trump being a cult leader. Yeah, well, I, I think there's a lot of elements of cult leadership there. If you, uh, if you actually read the... Uh, the Cult of Trump. It was written by a deprogramming psychologist that explains what he's doing to people, how he does it. And obviously, there's a great mythology around him that he's created over four decades. And so you got sucked into it, unfortunately. I got sucked into it, unfortunately. But the very good news for you and me is we're out of it, which is terrific. And what I love about your book, Michael, it is a treatise on how to get other people out of it. And so that, that would be the most amazing thing if we could do that. You see, Anthony, the difference between you and I on this is the fact that you got out of it on your own volition, and that's actually commendable. I, on the other hand, got out of it because I was forced out of it. I was thrown out of it as a result of the FBI raid and as a result of the law. Yeah, so no, I, I, I think my critics would say that I got out of it because I got fired. Uh, I would like to think that I got out of it because I was looking at the manic behavior and the incredibly crazy decisions and the policy and said, okay, I can't disavow my personal life story or my personal integrity to stay in this situation. Well, I remember, you know, one of the things that I'd like to do is just to go back, what is it now, about 10 years 
and talk about how you and I actually first met. Do you remember where that was? Yeah, I'm going to say that we first met, I think, at an Aramni event. Is that That's right. That is right. I think we did a General Motors building. Wild Gottschall converted the cafeteria into a telethon. You came in and you were gung-ho. You're an incredible fundraiser, by the way. Uh, and I think Mr. Trump was with you. Yeah, I think, I, if I'm not mistaken, right? Didn't, didn't I raise more money than anybody else that day for Romney? I actually remember that. I thought you were killing it on the fundraising side. And uh, it's one of those things where, you know, we clicked right away. And then we developed a relationship. And I would say, you know, don't be mad at me for this. I would say that uh, I got closer to Donald Trump as a direct result of Michael Cohen because of my personal friendship with you. I think that would be a fair characterization, right? And- Great. So now I have to apologize for that too. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. But I mean, but Michael, just think about it, right? Because you, you're the one that really introduced me to him. Remember we had that breakfast uh, the morning of right after the Apprentice uh, finale. Uh, and then I was already with somebody else. And then you were actually mad at me that I was with somebody else. And then when I joined Mr. Trump's campaign, we can call him Donald Trump, whatever you want to call him, you, you were mad at me in the beginning because you were like, you should have gotten on the campaign early. You were with Ted Cruz at the time, correct? No, no, Jeb Bush. Oh, Jeb. I had a great disdain for Ted Cruz. I think he's one of the more lower life forms in American politics. I've never seen anybody with more cowardice than him. Uh, when Trump went after his wife, are you kidding me? I mean, as you know, uh, Trump went after my wife on Twitter, uh, and that's done by design. That's done to uh, scare the people, intimidate the people into submission and silence, but it's also a flair for deterrence, meaning, let me show you what I'm going to do to this guy if he breaks ranks with me. That same sort of thing is going to happen to you. Soon you'll be in the barrel too if you decide to break ranks with me. That's why he's sure. got all these Frady Cat sycophants surrounding him, you know? Oh, don't forget, he went after my wife as well. I mean, uh, only a weakling goes after somebody's wife. Well, yeah, we know that. Even the mob, you know, even the, even guys that are in the mob would never do that. They, they never go after civilians. But, but what I can't figure out, and maybe you know better than me, and you do address it in the book to an extent, but maybe we can address it viscerally here. How does he have 40% support at this moment? He's destroyed the economy. He's wrecked the healthcare system with the pandemic and the mishandling of the pandemic. He's lying about science and he's politicizing things like wearing a mask. He's made the country weaker by disavowing our longstanding alliances. And uh, he's signing these pieces of paper. If you know anything about the Middle East, all of these people were working together anyway. Uh, This formalization is uh, after 15 years of work. It's not minute to minute, like Donald Trump created this. And so how does he have 40% of the people still in a trance, Michael? You know, it's interesting, Anthony. That's a question that comes to me often, not just by people on Twitter or news journalists. And I don't really have the answer. He's like a cult leader. And for some reason, people must be feeling like they are missing something or they need something in their lives, they need to be told what to do, and they seem to follow him. Now, of course, there's a whole group that just have racist beliefs, and the language that Trump uses and the visceral hate that he creates seems to be appealing to them. But I think for the most part, Americans are looking at Trump 
because he says it over and over and over again, that the economy is the greatest it's ever been in the history of the United States. And even when I was up in Otisville, I would have conversations with people, and I would say the same thing to them, whether it was inmates or even correctional officers. What is it about this craziness that you are okay with, and why is it that you could possibly want to follow him and expect that whatever he's going to do is going to be beneficial to you or to your family. And the common theme that I hear is always economic, whether it's their 401k or how much money that they're going to be making under a Trump administration or how much money they will end up losing if it's a Biden administration. And I ask them always the same question. Wait, wait. How do you know what the Biden administration's economic result is going to be? Well, he's a Democrat, and therefore, I never do well under Democrats. Well, that's a Trump talking point. And you know as well as anybody, because you were around it as much, Donald Trump lives off of talking points. It's, as I say in the book, it's very Stalinistic. If you say something over and over and over again, people will start to believe it. He does it with nicknames of people, Lying Ted, Crooked Hillary, now Sleepy Joe, right? Um, convicted liar Cohen, right? He has, an, he has something for everybody. And the more that he says it, the more people start to repeat it and they start to believe it. And that's actually a sickness. And that's where that 38% base is coming from. And it's dangerous. But he's getting, he's getting some help, though, Michael. You know, he's got acolytes in the right wing media, right wing talks, radio. Uh, that are also pushing his agenda. He's also set up something that is very divisive. He's trying to convince a very large group of the population that there's a great culture war going on and that if he doesn't win, he's sort of the last white man standing. And if he doesn't win, there'll be a complete shutdown of the culture and a complete shutdown of the society, uh, none of which is true. You know, what the, the great irony about America, the media plays to this culture war, but yet everybody, uh, despite that nonsense, is living their life independently with large measures of freedom. The great angst in the society is more of a, a racial angst and an economic angst. There's, a, there's an unfairness to what's going on in the economic system right now that has to be right-sized. Uh, he promised that. You were with me and him when he was promising that. But Anthony, let's be fair now. Right. Let's call it out for what it is. We're talking about Fox News and the liberal right, the New York Post, um, another property that's owned by the Murdochs. Yes. In all fairness, what they are doing, what the Tucker Carlson's are doing and the Sean Hannity, who used to be my friend. Yeah. He used to be my friend. He used to call on me with his own personal issues, with business um, advice and so on. We spoke all the time. It was actually I, and you know this to be fact, it was I that actually recreated the relationship, which came to a screeching halt, thanks to Corey Lewandowski and others. They have become state-run news. And what yeah. they do is they continuously promote, again, that Stalinistic approach, which is to repeat, repeat, repeat. And if you repeat it enough times, that people will start to believe it. And it blew my mind, even while I was sitting in prison, that people used to say to me, well, Trump is the only person that cares about prison reform. I said, prison reform? What are you talking about? What has been done? Where's the benefit? Who has seen anything? Yes, Trump brought it up. He has. But it went nowhere because he put it in the hands of Jared Kushner, 
a.k.a. the secretary of everything and the secretary of nothing, and nothing has been done in order to benefit prison reform. But that's just like everything. What he does is he takes a popularist view and he says, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to tear it down and we're going to make it much, much better. It's going to be better. It's going to be beautiful. You're going to love it, right? It's, it's going to be great, marvelous. And then you turn around and you watch two, three, four weeks go by, two, three, four months go by, and nothing has been done. He did the same thing with immigration. He's done the same thing with prison reform. He's done the same thing with every single thing that he has actually said that he is going to do. But he talks about it as if he's accomplished something to which he's entitled to the Nobel Peace Prize. Well, you know, I, I agree with everything you're saying, but I think it's important for listeners to also get some background. The Murdochs were not on board on the Trump campaign. Roger Ailes was not on board on the Trump campaign. There were uh, senior people inside of Fox News that were super upset at the Megyn Kelly fracas. Uh, and they had issued a couple of uh, very aggressive and very hypercritical statements of Donald Trump related to that. Uh, and they were more siding at that time with Ted Cruz than they were Donald Trump. Donald Trump became a, an acquired taste after he won that very, very narrow election. Well, do you think it was an acquired taste? Do you think it was a necessary taste? Yeah, a necessary, a, ne a necessary taste. Yes, a necessary taste. I, I, I guess where when people criticize the capitalist system, and you know I'm a huge fan of capitalism and free markets, uh, where the criticism could be somewhat warranted is in these media companies, Michael, they are super excited about the revenues that come in from these sorts of ratings. You know, uh, Les Moonves, pretty honest guy, he said, yeah, I don't like the SOB, but he's great for my ratings. The Murdoch family and the Fox uh, News Corporation, they've decided to uh, play them because they know that there's a certain demographic of Americans. I mean, they're going to they're going to in, in, in the commercial breaks, they're going to buy catheters and buy my pillows. But there's a certain group of Americans that will watch this sort of nonsense and believe this sort of nonsense. And if you looked at last night's rally in Michigan, they were literally dressed the same. If you want to talk about cult leadership and like people wearing black Nikes waiting for the Hellbot Comet and shit like that. I mean, that's what it, that's what it looked like last night. Well, it's also, if you notice, all of his rallies, to me, look like Klan meetings. There's almost no diversity there. And yet he would stand up and bold-faced lie to the American people and state that I have done more for the African-American community. I have done more for the Hispanic community than any president since Abraham Lincoln. And the crazy shit is that people actually listen to it. And... People inside, even when I was in Otisville, people would turn around and say, he has done more for the black community than any other president. And I sit there and I look at it and I say, I was once like you. I was an acolyte. I was a sycophant. I believed everything that the guy was saying, or at least I pretended to. And it was my job to drink the Kool-Aid and to keep promoting the same nonsense to anybody that was willing to listen. Well, I mean... And, uh, and I'm going to say one other thing. This is the reason why I think he's going to lose. You were incredible with the African-American community. And I don't remember, I think you were going to Cleveland or you were going someplace and you asked me to proofread your speech. And I read your speech and I remember thinking, this is... I remember you laughed at me. Yeah, because I said, Michael, this is a projection of who you want Donald Trump to be. This is not Donald Trump. Do you remember what I said to you? I said to you, 
I felt like Rembrandt. I felt like Picasso. That I wanted to take the picture that is Donald Trump and I wanted to whitewash it. I wanted to create a man who not only would I be able to fully respect, but the country and the world would be able to respect. And I wanted to paint him this, this beautiful picture of a man who was human, who was empathetic, who was caring, who was not a sexist, a misogynist, a homophobe, Islamophobe, anti-Semite. He's all of these things, but I didn't want people to see it that way. 100% remember that. So why did you, why did you want to do that? Because I think that will help the American people. Ultimately, we've got 55 days to go. We have to explain to the American people the danger of this man. So why did you want to do that in 2016? Well, I talk about it in Disloyal. It was, I also saw myself as being a bigger power player in the world, in the government, than just working as the executive vice president of the Trump organization. And had he won... I would have been able to effectuate certain changes right. that are important to me right. and, to, and to who I am. But despite what Republicans wanted to say at my House Oversight meeting, oh, you wanted to go into the White House. You wanted to be chief of staff. Look, had he offered me chief of staff, it probably would have been difficult to turn it down. But anybody who knows me, yourself included, I turned down every single job that was offered come in as an assistant to Don McGahn, as the undersecretary for, for White House chief of staff, work with Don McGahn. How about this? How about that? No, I wanted to be exactly the role that I got, which is the personal attorney to President Donald J. Trump. I wanted it because there were still so many things that were open, litigation, and I wanted the ability to have the attorney-client privilege with him and be able to help him from an outside point of view, and also to be able to do my own work in a consulting business, which I had already received requests from multinational companies that were interested in talking to me, not because they wanted me to go into the White House and to change policy and to lobby on their behalf. That, that was something that they wanted to pin on me, but that was not possible because I never did it. But what they, what they wanted was to understand this enigma, Donald Trump. What is he thinking? How does he think? What do you think he would say? What do you think he would do under this circumstance or that circumstance? And these mega billion dollar companies were willing to pay to have me as a consultant because nobody knew who Donald Trump really was. And you know this to be accurate. Everybody was expecting Hillary Clinton to win. There were a thousand people hired on K Street in Washington as consultants and lawyers and lobbyists, all expecting her to win. And when she lost, these thousand people had no place to go. There was no job. And they really needed somebody who could explain to them Donald Trump's sort of wacky personality and his sort of crazy behavior as it relates to certain issues like drug pricing. Right. And that was the role that I wanted to play. And that was the role that I got. So talking about jobs, Jared and Ivanka did not want you in the White House. Neither did Reince Priebus. Um, you remember what Reince Priebus's nickname was? I do. Yes. You want to say it? Well, well yeah, it was Rancid Penis. But I, I don't I don't remember who called him that first. I can't take credit for that nickname. 
I, I do get credit for liar spice from the Spice Girls. I thought <laughs> Sean was a ridiculous liar. And, you know, every Spice Girl's got a nickname. And so my nickname for him was Liar Spice. But uh, I can't take credit for RP. You know, but these guys were bad guys. And by the way, they hated Trump, by the way. Hated him. It's a cycle. They hate him. Then they hold their nose and they're like, okay, I can get something out of him. Let me go work for him. Okay. And, you know, you and I could be accused of a lot of things, but we were way more genuine than that. You know. So at the end of the day, what ended up happening is, and you're aware of this, I lobbied for you with Trump in order to fulfill that job. And I explained to Mr. Trump at the time, who is now um, president-elect, that Anthony had spent an enormous amount of time both raising money and promoting your presidency, your candidacy. Well, you know, Michael, Anthony was never really with us. Well, yes, Mr. Trump, he was. No, he wasn't. First he was for Jeb Bush, and then he was for he was for somebody else. Scott Walker, Scott Walker. Yeah. Scott Walker, right. Yeah. And, and I said to him, Mr. Trump, it doesn't make a difference. At the end of the day, the guy raised many millions of dollars for you. He's been promoting. Yes, you were not his first, but that's not because he doesn't like you. It's because he had many years of pre-existing relationships with these individuals, and he had obligations in order to fulfill. And you could understand that. And as you remember, he then took a warming to you. And it was more than just a warming. He actually liked you, respected you, and how many times asked you to come to the office in order to talk about the economy and things that would need to be done once he ends up taking office. Yeah, look, you put me on the executive transition team. The, 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 the problem really started for him, actually, when he got the job, because uh, in his space and in his zone of competence of being a raconteur, a television host, somebody that liked to be tabloided, somebody that liked to go on shock, jock radio, things like that. He, he you know, he was a, you know, a polarizing figure doing that, but generally gregarious and charming when you met him. But he lost all that charm and he lost all that gregariousness uh, once he got the job because he actually, you know, is unfit for that job. Anthony, he didn't want the job. When he decided to run in 2015, he did not think he had a prayer's chance of winning this election. But what we were going to do is we were going to make this the greatest infomercial in the history of politics. Right. And, and you'll remember something else. When I was in your office and we were doing a little telethon of our own, raising money for Trump, I saw on your desk you had a red book. And I looked down at it, and it was Romney's transition book. Yes. And I asked you if I can have it, because I wanted to give it to Trump. And it was about two or three days before the election. And you gave it to me. Yeah. So I gave it to Mr. Trump, and I said to him, this is a list of every single position that you're going to have to fill. And we don't have anybody right now. So he said, I don't want to see it. It's bad luck. I said, well, Mr. Trump, if you win... Every one of these positions, it's like 1,500 names, has to be filled. And that doesn't mean that everybody that you ask is going to accept the job. So there's a lot of work here that needs to be done. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to know about it. I'm not interested. It's bad luck. Get it out of my room. Go downstairs. Give it to Jared. Give it to, you know, give it to um, Bannon. Give it to whoever the hell you want to give it to. But I don't want it. Okay. I took it downstairs. I gave it to them. And as you know, he won. 
And the day after he won, it's 7 o'clock in the morning, all of a sudden people start coming into my office, like Reince Priebus, with a list of every one of these positions that are opened. And it was stapled together on those like 30 or 35 pages. Put down the names of anybody that you think would be interested in this role. <laughs> I mean, that was the transition. And then he tasked people like you, a loyalist at the time, to help him to fit the positions for individuals so that when he entered the White House, that there would be people behind him. But what people don't know is that even to this day, three and a half plus years post him taking the position, those roles still aren't even filled, that most of the ambassadors weren't even appointed. They just moved up because they were second in charge. I, rem I remember everything that you said. I, I guess my question to you is how do we get the American people? Um, because, you know, his comment about you or me, well, you know, I dumped those guys and so they're losers. That's why they're coming after me, which couldn't be further th from the truth. I, I could care less about any of that. I, I tried to stay loyal to him, Michael, after I was fired. You know that. Two years after I was fired, I was still trying to be positive about him. So I, I switched my allegiance because I said, okay, this is too much. This is going to be detrimental to the country and detrimental to the world. I said that a year ago, and uh, look at what happened. He ended up getting impeached, and then he ended up blowing it on the uh, COVID-19 crisis. Well, that's, that's not even blow. That's just a complete disaster. But what do you think was the actual pivotal moment in your life that woke you up? To pivoting from that loyal guy that you are. Yeah, look, I want to be loyal, but you can't, as I've always said to you, and I'll say to everybody that listens to your podcast, loyalty is symmetrical. You don't have to be over loyal to somebody that is not being loyal to you. And if someone's not being loyal to you, you are allowed to say no mas. Okay, so he's not delivering on healthcare. He's not delivering on middle-class solutions to create economic aspiration. He didn't deliver in the healthcare crisis. We've lost 4.7 million jobs because of him and his incompetence. So you, it's okay to leave him. But when he was telling the squad to go back to the countries that they originally came from, uh, and three of them were born here, Michael, and one was a naturalized citizen, and all four were democratically elected to the Congress, that's a racist nativist trope that's been said in America for 150 years. That, that's almost as if, if, if uh, Joe McCarthy had a baby with Huey Long or Charles Lindbergh, and then the baby got raised by Roy Cohn, and, the, and, the, and now the baby grows up to become Donald J. Trump, the 45th president. And so, so that's nonsense. And so when I hit him on that, he went crazy. He hit me. Then I think I called him. Fidel Adolf Trump. You were in prison at the time, but I, I called him Fidel Adolf Trump because I tried to get the fat shaming in there because I know, I know he hates his body. You know, his, he's got body dysmorphia. And so I, I, I called him Fidel Adolf Trump, which intersected the fat shaming with the dictatorship. And then he went nuts and he went after my wife. So once he went after my wife, I took the gloves off. I mean, one thing you know about me, I'm definitely not Ted Cruz, man. Not going to take so, that you know, kind of Anthony, you, you and Trump actually, over the course of the relationship, had 
several real good fights, and not even these public ones. I'm talking about private ones. Yeah. Do you remember? And do you remember any of those fights? Because I have I, one in particular that stood out them. for me that I ended up taking abuse from him. Why the fuck did you bring Anthony Scaramucci into my office? And he said this. Do you remember what that conversation was about? Yeah, I do remember. It was about Barack Obama being smart because you went to law school at the same time that Barack Obama was there. Do you remember what set him off even worse than that? When you said that the only one person who was smarter than Barack Obama that you met at Harvard Law was Michelle Obama. Do you remember the look on his face and how red it got? And then you looked at me and you were like, oh boy, I think I said the wrong thing. And we both looked at each other with, how do we get past this? No, he went nuts. He got upset. I remember that whole, I remember the whole story. But I mean, you know, Michelle Obama, just for the facts, she graduated high school early. She graduated Princeton early. She graduated Harvard Law School at the age of 23. So I was class of like 89. I think Michelle was probably class of 87, even though we're the same age. Barack Obama didn't graduate until 91. And so they didn't even overlap. But I, I happened to overlap with both of them uh, because of where I was. I was a 3L, third-year law student, when President Obama was a 1L. Uh, and I, I remembered him, and I was fond of him. I liked him. And you know I raised him money in the 2008 campaign because you know I wasn't that political at the time. And I was like, okay, this is a guy I know running for president, uh, was in school with me. Let me try to help him. and and. You know, listen, Mr. Trump did not like that. Donald Trump did not like that. He went off on me, but he went off on me. I don't know if you remember, there was a kid named Epstein who was at the Wall Street Journal. He's not there now, uh, but he went off on me because he was attacking the hedge fund community. I don't know if you remember that. Oh, I I remember it. And I said on television, you know, he's like, he's going to be the president of the Queens County Bullies Association. Why is he attacking the hedge fund community, we're paying our taxes, we are helping venture capital and blah, blah, blah. And so then he went nuts on me. And then he started railing on me at a rally in Michigan in August. And then true to form, I called him. I said, let's meet. And when I went to go meet with him, you know that he's a bully and most bullies are cowards. So when we were face to face, uh, he started backing up the same way he backed up on Chris Wallace when Chris Wallace showed him the tweets about him denigrating Chris Wallace relative to Mike Wallace's dad. You know, and then he proceeded to say, oh, no, you're a great guy. You, you, you. I said, look, I pay as much taxes as anybody in the country. And then he was like, oh, well, then you need a new accountant. You remember that whole conversation? I sure do. It was all about deferred compensation. Correct. And I said, let's call a truce if Jeb Bush ends up coming out of the race and you want me to work for you, give me a call. I'll come work for you. It was a rough and tumble relationship from day one. Uh, okay. But ja- Jared said something to me that made me laugh. He said, well, he respects you because you're coming back at him. Most people don't come back at him. But once he got out of the white house, anybody that came back at him a little bit right out the door, Michael, you know, he, he didn't want anybody around him that had any level of principles or integrity, you know? And so the great irony is the two people that hated him the most, Liar Spice and Rancid Penis, they're, they're going to rallies with him, but they hated him the most. Yes, and disrespected him in front of everybody 
more than anybody. Totally. And it, to, to me, I, I never, I never cared for Reince, and I never cared for Spicer. They're just dishonest people. At least you, you and I are flawed people, but at least we're honest and authentic. Hi, Dennis Quaid here, and I wanted to tell you about Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Raw and absolutely riveting, and with over 16 million downloads, Wrongful Conviction Podcast are social justice in action. Featuring stories about and interviews with men and women who have spent decades behind bars for crimes they did not commit. Some have since been released, while others still face a death sentence or life in prison. But all have been victims of a frighteningly flawed justice system. Wrongful Conviction Podcast does more than simply tell the stories of those who have been wrongfully imprisoned. The show has inspired me to learn more and to get involved. And I hope it will do the same for you. Listen to Wrongful Conviction Podcast wherever you tune in to your favorite podcast. You may remember this too. I, I remember sitting with Reince and at the time you had Bannon there and uh, Jared was there. And I turned around and I said to Mr. Trump when he decided that Reince was going to be the chief of staff. I said, one thing that's going to end up happening, and I know this to be certain, that one day, Mr. Trump, you're going to pick your head up from the Lincoln desk and you're going to look up and you go, where the fuck are all my people? Because none of you are Mr. Trump's people. None of you give a shit about him as a person. You're all here for 10 minutes, not 10 years. And he's going to look up one day and scared like a baby. He's going to look up and he's going to be like, where are all of my fixers? Where are all, where's all my help? Right. And exactly as I said, exactly as I said to you and to others at that time, none of these people will last and none of them did last. All of that stuff is obvious to you and me. But where do you think things are now, Michael? Meaning, give me a sense for his headspace. I mean, I can give you my sense for his headspace. He he's going to lose. He's scared of losing. And he's now trying to figure out if he can blow enough racist dog whistles to put himself in the game or if he can somehow corrupt the election outcome. Yeah, I think it's more the latter. Okay. I think that in his mind, there's a Putin belief system that it doesn't matter who you vote for. All that matters is who's counting the votes. And that's exactly what Trump is doing now when he plays around with the Postal Service, with Lou DeJoy, who was with me as a vice chair of the RNC Finance Committee. And I'll be honest with you, I never really knew what Lou DeJoy did or how he ended up raising as much money for Trump as he did, but he ended up buying himself that position of Postmaster General. And they're going to use Lou DeJoy the same way that they used me, and Lou DeJoy will end up in prison for exactly the same stupid things that I ended up in prison for, which is doing Donald Trump's dirty deeds and doing Donald Trump's business, because Donald Trump cannot afford to lose this election. If he loses, he knows that New York and other states will come down on him like a brick. And he's petrified of that. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. So, so what do you think is going to happen, Michael? You've you're, you got a good sense for this stuff. You've got good instincts. What, what do you think is going to happen? It's really difficult because he does have that cult-like trance over so many people in this country. And again, the reason I wrote this loyal, and remember where I wrote it from, but the reason I wrote it was really as a way to wake up America. To those people who are reading this book, assuming that you're not already somebody who's going to vote for Biden, 
I want you to see the psychosis, the Trump derangement syndrome that's going on right now in this country. I want you to see that the man that you're asking to be the leader of this country for four more years is a despot. He's an autocrat that doesn't want to leave office. And I say this all the time, and I'm going to say it again. If Donald Trump loses, he's going to do everything within which to stay in power. He's going to claim that the election was rigged, that ballots weren't counted. He's going to file a lawsuit. He's going to do whatever he can do in order to stay in power. And as long as he's staying in power, he has people like Bill Barr and others trying to figure out how he can stay as president for life. He wants to be the Kim Jong-uns or the, the Putins or the Maduros. He wants to be this type of a leader where he doesn't have to run. Running is a waste of his time. He believes that he is the one and only person that can fix America without even realizing that he is the most destructive force in America right now. I wrote the book because I want people to open their eyes and use the examples, use the stories, use the information that I've provided you in the book as a basis for making a sound decision whether or not this is somebody that you can possibly pull the lever and vote for come election day. And my hope is that you have an ounce of decency and that you realize that the man that you're asking to be the president wouldn't do a goddamn thing for you or your family unless it serves a benefit for him. And it's a scary position that he is not a president for all Americans. He is only the president for himself, his family, his business first, and then those that are around him that are supporting him financially. How about the insight that Howard Stern has, though, right? He's like, yeah, the people that like him, he wouldn't even let into his hotels. You know, that's the, that's the other big irony, right? He is, he is a guy that is starstruck by people. And he really only cares about brands, right? That's why he let uh, Woodward uh, interview him. Well, I think he let Woodward in for a completely different reason as well. I mean, maybe yours is correct, but I really believe that he thought that he's smarter than Woodward, that he is the smartest guy at the table whenever he's sitting at a table. Right. And that he would be able to charm Woodward into writing something that he would basically tout that the great Bob Woodward just wrote a book and he praises me and everything is, is wonderful and it's going to be one laudatory chapter after another until you start to listen to the stupidity that is coming out of his mouth and the fact that right after he made those statements to Woodward, he's standing in a microphone before the American people and he's bold-faced lying to each and every one of us about COVID. And I can't tell you how many people I know have passed away as a result of COVID, including one of my very dear friends. Her mom had COVID. She was so dizzy that she fell and she died. This is not a flu. This is not a headache. This is a real disease. This is a pandemic. And the fact that this idiot will go to rally after rally, and he will sit there without a mask, knowing that it is contracted via air. It's an airborne virus. He will sit there and he will ignore it, keeping the mask in his pocket, if he even has one, and showing what a tough guy he is. And the reason that he's able, in my opinion, 
is that he probably had COVID and he probably was given notification by the doctors that he has the antibodies. So he feels that he's impervious now and he doesn't give two shits about you or your family members or your children or your friends or anyone that if they get COVID and then they die, who gives a shit? Especially if they're a Democrat. It's worse if it's Republicans because one potential less vote for him. But he doesn't care about your life. And when you talked about loyalty, Donald Trump is like, as we would say in the office, he's like First Avenue. He's one way. Do for me that benefits me, but I'm not going to do the same for you, which is the reason why he can get up in that sociopathic way and boldface lie to you and just say it again and again and again. There's no COVID. Everything's fine. It's all about the, it's like a flu. More people die from the flu. Who knew? Who knew? Huh? Blah, blah, huge, duh, this, beautiful. It's bullshit. And he knows it's bullshit, and he just doesn't care because he lacks empathy. And that's the truth. Well, I think it's well said. I mean, you know, he does act like somebody that's already had the disease, you know. I mean, and he was taking hydroxychloroquine, according to him. So I don't know. It just seems very odd the way he's handling this. And, uh, you know, you and I both know that hundreds of thousands of people are going to die by Election Day, possibly 300,000 people by December 1st. And it's a tragedy. And God only knows how many people's lives could have been saved if we had just followed the science and the epidemiologists and done the right things for these people. Ultimately, history will judge it as Trump's virus uh, because it, uh, through his little small hands, there's a lot of blood on those hands, man. A lot well, of blood true. on those hands. That's true. But you may remember I said that Donald Trump's biggest problem is that when he steps into a room, he believes that he is the smartest guy there. I mean, think about what must be going on inside his head when he turns around and he says he knows more about this than the scientists. That because he has an uncle who is with MIT, that he knows more about this than they do. He knows more about the military. His, his, he, his gut knows more. It's silly, Michael. You, you and I know how silly this is. Yes, but the American people. How do you break the fever, though, man? That's the thing. You have to do what he's doing. You have to constantly reiterate to those that are willing to listen. Take the wax out of your ears. Put some Visine in your eyes and see and hear clearly, whether it's his own words or the words of people who are surrounding him for so many years. Donald Trump does not care about you, your family, or even this country. He only cares about himself. But, you know, Anthony, on that note, I also wanted to say that yesterday, um, in response to Bob Woodward's book, you tweeted something out. And you wrote, if Donald Trump possessed a trace of conscience or character, he would resign the presidency. He will not resign the presidency. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, well, that, I mean, that, that's basically... I lifted that from Remnick's uh, New Yorker article just to catch people so that they would read the article. You know what I mean? Sure. But don't you think it goes further than that? Not only will he not resign as president, but he's going to do whatever he can and fight to stay president. Now, I do believe, and I've said this on television, that if in fact he loses, I can see him pulling a stunt like resigning then allowing Mike Pence to become the president and having Mike Pence pardon him for all of his federal crimes, a pre-pardon, so to speak. 
without realizing that, of course, the pardon power does not extend to the city or the states. Let me push back on that for a second, though. How how is Mike Pence honestly going to get away with that? You know, he's he's going to be the he's going to be the interregnum president. It's different when Jerry Ford takes over halfway through the term and has to stand for reelection. This is going to be the interregnum president, and he's going to and he's going to be willing to do that for Donald Trump. Many of us have done stupid things, things that we regret every day, and we will regret every day for the rest of our lives. Tony Schwartz said it the other day, I've owned it. Tony Schwartz said he's owned it. You've owned it. I've owned it. But man, that is a big one. Boy, that's like seven or eight electron orbits away. He's going to pardon him. He's going to be the 46th president for nine weeks, and then he's going to pardon him. All right, man, if that if that happens, boss, I'm buying you dinner anywhere you want to go, any place in the world. Okay, well, I'll fly you there. Okay, Anthony, but don't don't forget, eight weeks. That's um, a little longer than eleven days. So don't be shocked what people are willing to do, right? Yeah. Or the yeah. level to which Donald Trump will bullshit him. Now think about let's talk about Mike Pence for a half a second, right? This incredibly religious individual or at least he claims to be an incredibly religious individual. Look at the way that he bold-faced lies, also right to the faces of the American people. He too has the blood on his hands of all of those that have perished that should not have as a result of COVID, as a result of the fact that he, following this idiot, will not put a mask on either. Because if he did, it would be seen by Donald Trump as a violation of his loyalty. And Mike Pence doesn't have the spine within which to stand up to Donald and to say to him, listen, Mr. Trump, Mr. President, everybody in the world is wearing a mask, not just in America, in the world. This coronavirus is increasing in our country while decreasing in other countries because they're taking proper steps. And Trump's reaction to him is, I don't give a shit. If you wear a mask in my presence, it's disloyal to me. And Mike Pence doesn't want to have to put up with the nonsense and the attacks that he would have to take as a result for such a disrespectful act in Donald Trump's eyes. That's a sick, that's a sick theory, and it's a sick thing to happen. But that's exactly what's going on, because you know as well as anybody, and you've seen it firsthand, the behavior, the vitriolic behavior that Donald Trump pursues when he believes that somebody has been disloyal to him. Yeah, but I mean, what about all his disloyalty, though, Michael? I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. Look what he's done to the country. He's actually been disloyal to the country, you know? Didn't I just say to you that loyalty with Donald Trump is like First Avenue? It goes one way. Yeah, no, no, I know it. How many times have you seen, Anthony, him go ballistic on somebody in your presence? I mean, yeah. you were not even really a part of the entire process yet, and right. you've watched him go ballistic. Anthony, do you remember when he went ballistic on Corey Lewandowski as a result of a loss that he believed that Corey should have won easily? I totally remember it, yes. I, and I was with, at that time, I was with Jeb in, that, in the campaign. And we were, we were placing our bets, frankly, on South Carolina. But do you remember the way that he made Corey feel at the time? That he, had, he attacked him so 
that Corey's face turned pale. He walked out with his head between his legs, and everybody else, we, we, uh, me personally, I was ecstatic about it because I can't stand the prick. But I remember in front of you and in front of others, he did it on purpose, and he does it on purpose because he wants to show the world. He wanted to show everyone in that office just how tough he was and how tough he can be. And especially if you disappoint him, this is going to happen to you. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing that, you know, we all have to answer for. Uh, the people that are there now, the people that have left, we all have to answer for why we put up for, with it. But what I, what I love about what you're doing is that you're sending such a message, such a beacon of hope to people. And what I wrote about you on Twitter after your Rachel Maddow interview, you're showing the 63 million people who made a mistake voting for him a path away from him. Uh, and what I love about what you're doing right now, Michael, is your path away from him, you look better, you are freer, you're freer mentally, you're freer physically, uh, and you're, you're on a path of a great uh, future and a great destiny because you were bold enough to do what you're now doing. Well, one of the things that uh, I was asked, I think it was yesterday by Seth Myers when I did his show, is you know, how do you feel now that people are hailing you as a hero? And my response to him is that I don't want anyone to call me a hero. To the same extent, I didn't want anyone to call me the villain of Donald Trump's story. I'm more concerned about the future of this country. I'm more concerned about my children. And I'm more concerned about all of the various things that are going on, the divisiveness that he's causing and the hatred. I'm, I'm completely freaked out when I watch as Trump turns around and says, you know, I'm not going to give money to California because it is a wildfire. And I'm not going to do it because it's a democratic state. None of these people, I, I can't win this state. So let them suffer. I'm not sure that the founders of this country would agree that you don't have to provide government funding during a catastrophe because you can't win that state. Or the same thing with New York or Chicago or any state that he wants to determine is not pro-Trump, that they are pro-Biden. I just find that to be, to me, the most disconcerting thing right now. And it bothers me that there are people in the country, the Trump supporters, that are willing to overlook this sort of behavior. Because what if it was Biden who was president right now and said, well, I'm not going to give to Minnesota money as a result of a hurricane because it's a Republican state and they would never vote for me. I mean, that's not what the president is supposed to do. He doesn't understand that you're the president for all of America, for all people, black, white, brown, Jews, Christians, Muslims, Hindus. You're, you're the president for everyone. But he doesn't care about that. He only cares about his base. And fortunately for us, his base is not and will not be big enough in order to carry this election. Well, we got to keep working because of what you said about who's counting the votes. You know, we have to, it has to be overwhelming uh, in order to really knock him out because I do think he's 
arguably the, one of the most dishonest people I've ever contacted with. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. But Anthony, so what can we do other than what we're doing now? What more can we do? What more could listeners do? Well, I, mean, I would say for you, Michael, you are on the path of doing an amazing service to the country. And I would, I would tell you to go back and look at your Rachel Maddow interview the authenticity of that interview, the honesty in that interview, you literally strip the bark off of yourself and you explain to people what happened to you, why you got sucked in, why you were a fervent advocate of his and how you got trampled by him and how everyone eventually gets trampled by him. And, and so we have to figure out how to coax 5 million people 10 million people. There are 63 million people that have voted for him. If you can get three to five million of those people to not vote for him or vote for the other side, there's no path to his electoral success. And so you remember, he got less votes than Governor Mitt Romney. He got 46% of the vote. Romney got 47.1. And so, so to me, doing what you're doing or what I'm trying to do is be accountable, be honest, be ethical, be authentic, but also explain to people, yeah, I was there. You know, you and I and people like me, we have to provide an off-ramp for people. What I find that sometimes is not going to be helpful is the hard left goes after people like you and me because we were with him at one point. And so therefore, we don't pass their purity test. But what I, my response to them is, okay, you're making a mistake. Give people the opportunity to admit that they got something wrong and give them that off-ramp. And what I'm so impressed with what you're doing and your rapport with Rachel Maddow the other day, you can see she respects you. Uh, she obviously read your book cover to cover because your book was quite empathic. I encourage everybody listening to this podcast to read that book. Uh, and, and she respects you in a way that one human being respects another human being for their humanity. Uh, no righteousness, no sanctimony, just, okay, I made a mistake. It cost me. It hurt my family. It set me back professionally. I went to jail for it, frankly. Uh, but I'm not going to come at it with anger and bitterness. I'm going to come at it with a healing therapeutic message for my country. And I got to tell you, man, I, I mean, as a friend, I'm very proud of you. Well, thank you, Anthony. I appreciate you coming on the show. You know, I love you, pal. You're a great guy. Um, you, you stood by me when others were afraid to. So there's a testament to, to your character as well. And um, looking forward to seeing you soon. So thank right. you again for coming on. And thank you for all your, your assistance. And just stay the course and help fight the fight. Amen, man. All right, I'll see you soon, Michael. Let's go now to my Twitter feed, where on each episode, I'll be reading some of your questions and comments. We'll start today with Wine Lover SF, who writes, So Joy Villa, at Joy underscore Villa, V-I-L-L-A, says, At Michael Cohen is an absolute joke. He's so hungry for the spotlight. Laugh, 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 emoji. At real Donald Trump dumped you get over it. Well, Joy, if only you knew during the campaign what was said about you, I'm not so sure that you would be writing something like this or feel the same way. 
Nobody wanted you around the campaign, and you may remember that when we were all in Washington, D.C. As for real Donald Trump dumping me, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. It was the greatest actual thing so that I could make amends with my wife, my daughter, my son, and my country. And as far as being an absolute joke, if you think on having one of the top podcasts that's out there after only one, one episode, well, okay, that would make me a joke. Or number one best-selling book, Disloyal, from New York Times, I guess that makes me a joke too. Am I hungry for the spotlight? I'm not hungry for the spotlight. Let me tell you what I'm hungry for. I'm hungry for an America that cares about its people, all of its people, and you should too. Our next tweet comes from Jillian Barbary at Ask Jillian. This at Bill Maher at Michael Cohen 212 was honestly the funniest opening for a guest. Self-deprecating and hilarious about the orangutan, which still kills me all these years later, Cohen won the audience over for sure with his Trump impressions. Great at Real Timers show, exclamation mark. Jillian, thanks so much for your tweet. You know, I, I, I try sometimes because sometimes laughing is a lot better than crying. While I'm self-deprecating and you think hilarious about what's going on, there's really nothing that's funny that's going on right now in this country. The divisiveness between parties, whether it's Republican, Democrat, black, white, American, foreign. These are all things that President Trump has created, along with his minion of mental cases that are all sitting in the White House. So while I'm thankful that I was able to win over the audience for sure, what I'm really trying to do is to win over the American people. And I'm trying to win them over so that they understand that Donald Trump is not fit to be president of the United States. And I'm trying to ensure that as I do in my book, Disloyal, that I've now given you enough information that you make the right decision in November come election day. And now, today's mea culpa. We spent a great deal of time exploring the meaning of Trump derangement syndrome and how it manifests on this podcast. But I wanna go even deeper now to try and explain the psychological comorbidities of an individual infected with TDS. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to malign the 63 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Not everyone who pulled that lever suffers from Trump derangement syndrome. Most are hardworking middle-class Americans, the so-called silent majority, who are just simply worried about day-to-day kitchen sink issues, like their 401k. They see themselves losing what precious little piece of American dream they had, and they're frightened. I'm not going to go into the whole political analysis on Trump's base. We know the playbook here. It's the same one Richard Nixon used in 1972. It's the same one Lee Atwater used in 1988. And it's the same one Trump is using in 2020. His added appeal, though, was his promise to drain the swamp. Voters were sick and disgusted with Washington. They were tired of the waste, the lobbyists, and even the politicians themselves. And here comes Donald Trump. He's a builder. He's a billionaire. He doesn't owe anybody anything. It would be a clean slate and things could finally get done. We know what really happened. The man is, after all, corrupted and compromised to the core. And the swamp, rather than being drained, was filled with all manner of bottom-dwelling reptiles. But I'll get to them in a second. My point here is that I don't blame these voters. Because taken at his word, 
I can understand the appeal. Unfortunately, it's all a big fucking gigantic lie. The man has done nothing but hurt the middle class. The vaunted Trump economy, the one shred of credibility he could possibly stand on, it's all gone. COVID took that away. And guess who put us where we are with that? But I get the surface attraction, and there is validity. So it's not really Trump derangement syndrome, but that's the only allowance I'm willing to make. The rest of the derangement lies in a combination of factors. First off, you've got your racists. There are millions of angry Archie Bunkers out there fueled with resentment by Fox and encouraged by Donald Trump. Rural America spoke up when they elected Trump. Rural America. And by rural America, he means white America. We're staring down the barrel of a gun here in white America. Here he's not pretending. He's one of them. It's probably the most pure and authentic of his beliefs, and the one thing not done for political expediency. The man is truly a racist to the core, and he's not afraid to let everybody know. Uh, look at my African-American over here. For a certain subgroup, that's enough right there to engender everlasting loyalty. The kind where he could shoot a man in the face, maybe me, on Fifth Avenue, and still they would vote for him. Next are the evangelicals. I write a lot about this in Disloyal, and even describe a scene where pastors from across the country, they come to Trump's office and lay hands upon him. Father, I pray for my president and our president. I pray for you to give him boldness. I pray, Father, for him to defy and challenge giants in the world and defy and challenge the enemies in this nation. Trump feigned piety in their presence, only to voice his disgust and disapproval to me, later asking, how can anyone believe that bullshit? But the evangelicals know Trump is an imperfect messenger. He's just a means to an end, a mere vessel to carry out an agenda. They agree to stand silent and hold their nose and Trump will stack the Supreme Court with conservative judges and enact a culturally conservative agenda. Again, he does not care or believe in any of this. The Bible certainly is one of, if not, I mean, it is the book. This is a man who enjoys cavorting with strippers and porn stars. He has no genuine sense of morality. It's simply ticking boxes and expedient for both sides. Now let's turn to the swamp. The cesspool of corruption created and enabled by Donald Trump is unprecedented in American history. He makes Richard Nixon look almost virtuous in comparison. You would have to look to the Warren Harding administration to even come close to a comparison. Even then, Trump still comes out ahead. After all, Harding was never impeached. This goes back to him being a truly corrupt and compromised individual. His entire way of going about business is an exercise in fraud and manipulation. For the sycophants, the thieves, operators, and opportunists, they see a fellow traveler in Donald J. Trump. They know with the right grease, financial or otherwise, they will be free to ply their trade and to do so in plain sight. The man is literally for sale. I know this because I brokered much of the political patronage he doled out after the election. And the sycophants, the Corey Lewandowskis of the world. Remember, some of the experts told us that, you know, it could be one to two million people who will have succumbed to this virus if we didn't do what the president did. So he's taken swift and decisive action on this. Who saw in Trump an opportunity to ride his coattails into the corridors of power. They knew how to play to an audience of one. Praise him enough on Fox News, parrot his favorite talking points, and fluff his fragile ego, and you're going to be invited into the inner circle. After describing the above individuals, we turn to those truly afflicted with Trump derangement syndrome. 
I put myself in that category, past tense. The otherwise rational and intelligent professionals, who despite themselves are drawn into his cult of personality. Take Mooch, for instance. The man is a Harvard Law graduate. Flamboyant in his presentation, yes, but nonetheless a grounded and intelligent person. How does he, after spending one day with Donald Trump, start threatening reporters on the telephone like a movie mafiosa? New Communications Director Anthony Scaramucci unleashing a profane attack telling a reporter from The New Yorker, what I want to do is I want to expletive kill all the leakers. He did it because he was playing to an audience of one. Donald Trump is the son, and we revolved around him looking for warmth and to curry his favor. For people like myself and the Mooch, we spent our entire lives as outsiders, or at least outside the true corridors of power. And then all of a sudden, we're inside the White House. It's intoxicating. And the only way to stay there and to stay within his good graces was to stay on script and stay on message. You deviate one iota and you find yourself cast out of the circle. In Anthony's case, he came in with the best of intentions. He truly thought he could affect change. And so you hang on to that shred of hope and dignity, believing that you could, and believing that it will outweigh the bad. But every day you're getting further and further away from the North Star until you can no longer find or even recognize your moral compass. And then you're lost, he owns you. And you'll do anything to stay within that circle. Because once you're out, you're out for good, and there's no getting back in. Most likely, your career and your reputation are in ruins. So your only choice is to stay and to continue to propagate the lie until you believe it yourself. This is how a cult works. Or more apt, this is how a dictatorship works. To the audience of one. The constant scurrying to remain in the leader's favor, requiring his subjects in Stalinistic fashion to repeat his lies and propaganda over and over and over again. Until after a while, you start to believe your own bullshit. That is true sickness. So thanks for listening to Maya Culpa Podcast, and I'm Michael Cohen. Maya Culpa is brought to you by LSJ Media and Audio Up, in association with Midas Touch, and it's hosted by me, Michael Cohen, produced by Audio Up by Jimmy Jelnick, and executive producer Jared Gustad, and it's edited by Tyler Dawson. Please register to vote. I'll do my part on this podcast, but to truly make a difference, you must vote this man out of office. So if you're not registered, go do it now and come out and make sure that you vote on November 3rd.